0: Blog Talk Radio Blog Talk Radio Black Politics Today An eye for what's at stake in global politics And your source for the social, economic, and political impact of public policy On the African American community Your host Kelly Michael Williams is a political strategy veteran with an undefeated campaign record and the political experience that spans 20 years, from Mayor Willie Brown in California to President Bill Clinton in our nation's capital. So get ready for a fresh and honest approach on the politics that affect you and your family the most. Now, your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Good
1: evening, and thank you. Good evening, and welcome to the show. you. I want to thank everyone to for joining us tonight. Today we have, a, once again, a very special show that uh, we thank are so excited about for... and we're excited to have. Uh... Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Tonight we're God looking forward you. to talking to uh, Ambassador Susan Johnson Cook, better known as Ambassador J. She is the former Ambassador for International uh, Religious Affairs under the current administration, President Barack Obama. And she served at the State Department under former Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. Uh, Reverend Sue Jay is well-known in the political arenas. She's been all over the globe and has done so many things uh, related to ministry to policy, uh, religious affairs, uh, politics. And she is a, what I would call a, a veteran and a, as some people uh, refer to as a she-ro. She, she's a, a great woman of God, but also a great woman of standard and, and knowledge and experience. And I'm just so excited and delighted to have her with us this evening. Uh, to join us and and talk about her experience in the uh, Obama administration as well as the Clinton administration. She served two presidents. Uh, She served under President Clinton as well as under President Obama, and uh, so she is certainly someone with a wealth of knowledge and experience and someone that we can all learn from and take advice from. And I know that she's going to have uh, a wealth of information for us and and provide us with uh, some new insights into what she's doing now that she has uh, left the halls of government and embarked on her own new career uh, that that she has recently started. So join me in welcoming Ambassador Susan Johnson-Cook. Welcome to the show, Ambassador.
2: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me.
1: Uh, It's my pleasure. I thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us and to uh, just be with us tonight, because certainly uh, I understand that someone of your great stature and uh, time and and just uh, uh, knowledge and and expertise could have been anywhere tonight and you taking your time out on a Tuesday evening to join me, so I'm very grateful for that. So. Well, we,
2: you know, we're glad that yours. you're doing what you're doing. So uh, we we appreciate what you're doing because the media is so important as a medium uh, to get the messages out from our community. So we uh, salute you and applaud you also for your consistency in doing that.
1: Well, I thank you. I, I'm, I'm trying to follow in your footsteps as you uh, trailblaze <laughs> and, and help us, help us all. Uh, get out here and, and do the things that, one, we're passionate about, but do the things that also help us to educate and inform our community and our our constituents in understanding the importance of what's going on in our country today uh, around the globe. Uh, I, I know that yeah. you, in your previous position, and your previous appointment as ambassador-at-large for International Religious uh, Freedom, you took on the responsibility of ensuring that uh, other countries as well as the United States understood what religious freedoms were and and dealing with uh, uh, foreign countries in that area. Talk to us about that. What what exactly was it that you were charged to do? And then talk to us about your experience in in carrying those duties out.
2: Okay, thank you for asking. Uh, The position is Ambassador at large for International Religious Freedom. I was the third ambassador. Each of us served at the pleasure of a president. So in 1998, it was created under the International Religious Freedom Act. They call it the IRF Act. Everything is in acronyms in the government. So the IRF Act, IRF Act. And it was created by Congress to be the principal advisor to the President of the United States and the Secretary of State on issues of international religious freedom, meaning across the waters. This position, this ambassadorship is probably the most political and it's the most unique because at large means we live here in Washington, but we have all 199 countries under our portfolio. So most people didn't understand the extensiveness and the intensiveness of the position because literally we had the whole globe. Whereas many ambassadors are chief of missions. And they have one country, and they serve that country for two, three, four, five years and learn everything they can about that country. We had to learn everything about the international religious freedom issues all over the world. And so we were housed in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, and I was the third ambassador. So there was one under President Clinton who served his last two years. President Clinton... Signed the legislation into act, um, and Secretary Madeleine Albright was the secretary at that time. So from 1998 to 2000, when he went out of office, there was one ambassador, Ambassador Seipel, and then under President George W. Bush, there was another ambassador who served six years. His name was Ambassador John Hanford, and I served three years under President Obama for the part of his first term and into his second term. So I ended up serving not just with Secretary Clinton, but also with Secretary Kerry. So I wanted to be part of the transition. My position took 2 years to, you know, to be uh nominated and confirmed, and so it was a very long time. So when you add that all together, it's been 5 years out of my life, but it was once in a lifetime opportunity which I will never forget to be a diplomat at the table. So we wanted to integrate religious freedom into foreign policy and international security. So it meant that I went to places of government to government across the globe carrying the president's and the secretary's messages about how that particular country was handling dealing with religious freedom. And each year there was what was called the Annual Religious Freedom Report, which I gave to the press and which went all over the world And so that was given from the State Department to the whole globe. So my task in being charged with really communicating the message of the U.S. government that, you know, everyone should have the right to believe or not believe, there are two um, documents, universal documents, that all countries signed on to, which are called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights that every country signed on to, meaning that we will allow our citizens to be able to believe what they want or not want. But, of course, there are some countries that do not honor that. And so our task as ambassador and, and those on my staff was to ensure um, that countries ca- followed that covenant and then those who weren't doing it and who really had egregious acts of violence and violations against their citizens, they would be put on what's called the uh, country of particular concern list or the CPC list. And so they were, at the time that I was there, there were eight countries of particular concern. And I was able to get to four of those, which means that it's really kind of, <laughs> really grim. Um, and what we were trying to do before I left was hopefully get countries, if they had not budged in the last few years, to at least take some Mm -hmm. small steps in terms of, you know, reversing what their actions have been. Then there were countries that were very good in terms of religious freedom, and and many of those were in Africa, you know, where they really Mm. uh, were the models universally. Like Liberia was my last stop, and, you know, Ambassador, uh, excuse me, President um, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the first woman president of Africa, was there. And it was the women of uh, Liberia that really led the men <laughs> to end the war and the violence against each other based on religion. And so it was an awesome experience because you saw peril, but you also helped create promise. And so, you know, it was a humanitarian effort. Here in the United States, we take it for granted because it's part of our constitutional constitutional rights. And so we have it in our Constitution that everyone can believe and have the right to believe. But if you look at... The black church, our very existence was birthed out of that tension where we didn't have the right to worship, where we wanted to worship and believe, and so we birthed the black church. So in many respects, having a black faith leader in the ambassadorial role was really brilliant, <laughs> you know, it was because it allowed people no matter what their religion was, to at least we had a common respect as faith leaders, like, okay, she understands our language, you know. And so before we did the diplomatic kind of engagement, we talked about our faith. And in many respects, that shifted the paradigm. And, you know, some the scriptures talk about some plant, some water, and God gives the increase. Well, I was clearly a planter because I planted seeds where no other diplomat had really gone before because they could not go as a faith leader. But here I was, a woman who understood the total picture. Um, and it was an awesome, awesome, awesome responsibility, but it was also an amazing, amazing experience.
1: Wow. It sounds like it. I had to have 190 countries under your... Uh, 199. <laughs> 199. 199. <laughs> mhm, and
2: to so to it was you have a lot to of,
1: have that responsibility,
2: yeah, I had a staff of sixteen people, and they were broken up to, into regions of the world central, south central asia central asia east asian pacific western hemisphere you know europe and and they their job in africa their job was to constantly research what was happening in you know in those countries and get me the information. And so we would respond depending on kind of how the prism was moving. And, you know, they had been watching it certainly over a course of years. I mean, as an appointee, we come in and I'm in the midst of something that's going on in the world. And in the world, there's something going on every single second of every day. So I come in um, with, you know, new fresh eyes I come in with faith eyes, and then you have this team that's been experienced in terms of how to navigate the bureaucracy and how to also understand, you know, that we move um, sometimes, and then if the president and the secretary said, this is not the time, move to also honor that. And I think for, you know, one of the advantages coming out of the church world is that we understand um, hierarchy and structure, and so, just like we have pastors and bishops, well, you know governments have what they call the principles, and um you have to understand in your role who the principal is and so my life was not my own in in the terms of number one belonging to God, but then, in that setting, you also understand that the the President of the United States has the responsibility on him. And so, you know, if you move out of sync, if you move on your on your own spirit, there's not use for you because they just like a pastor knows the whole picture of what's going on in his or her church, and some of us right. see a little sliver of it, the president sees the whole picture. And so you can't go in there and say, well, my opinion, I think this is what we should do, because a whole lot of things are at stake. So understanding how to flow with the team how to stay in your lane, you know, Um, and so my lane was not the domestic issues. My lane was not um, other things that were happening in the State Department. My lane was international religious freedom, and so to understand that and to really try to do that well took my undivided attention, You know, when I first came in, of course, you know, a lot of the black church world and women wanted to celebrate me. So there were a ton of receptions, and I was flying back and going back a lot and speaking. And and at one point they said, okay, you know, that's kind of enough. And I was like, well, come on, you know, this is like the biggest thing that's happened in the black church world a long time. And they said, you know, you came in here knowing how to preach. You came in here knowing that, being celebrated. They said, now we're branding you as a diplomat. And once they said that, for whatever reason, it shifted my whole thinking. And I understood I was in new waters, and I was going out of my comfort zone. And so the first year was kind of, you know, it was very different because no one on the outside understood what I had to do, and inside I had to learn, you know, what to do. And so when they say it's lonely at the top, it's because, You are, for a season, you are assigned and appointed by God to do a particular task. And whether anybody understands it on the outside or not, you have to stay really focused. You have to stay um, really centered. You have to make sure Mm -hmm. that your spirit is intact, your body is intact, your mind's intact. And so you can't... You can't, like, believe your own press. You can't read your press. You can't read the attacks, you know, because you're going to always have critics. So you have to really say, okay, God, for this season, how do I survive? And so my faith, um, the wells of faith were very deep. And, you know, I thank God for the experience. And, um, you know, it's not a separation of church and state because here you had someone from the church in the state, (laughs) you know. and Mm -hmm. Here you had someone who could communicate to both worlds. And so a lot of faith leaders of all faiths, you know, came to what we called um, faith leader roundtables. And I planted seeds, which now there's someone else from the faith and um, the White House faith-based office who's now coming and he's taking it to another level, you know, because, you know, everyone has their assignment and their role and everyone has their time. And if there's one right. thing I wanted to communicate is you have to know what time it is and you got to know your time. And you also have to know when it's your, ti- your time is over for that particular role. And people were like, you left Obama? I mean, you know, from the outside looking in. how you?" And it's like my assignment's done. I was so clear. And so they're like, well, do you have any regrets? And I was like, no, because while I was there I gave it everything I had, um, I believe I honored what God asked me to do. I honored what I believe the president asked me to do and the secretary. And so then you go to the, you close a chapter, and then you move to your next. And so I'm in this phase of waiting for my, my next marching orders. I'm pretty clear what they are. But just knowing what time it is in this, you know, the scripture of the sons of Issachar, they knew what time it was, and you have to know what time it is.
1: That's very interesting you talk about that because timing is everything. And, and, and something that um, I remember Bishop Jakes talking about a few years ago at a New Year's revival, he was always talking about rhythm, being in rhythm uh-huh. and how things work in rhythm and God works in rhythm. And that rhythm is yes. timing of, of episodes and, and seasons and things that happen, not only in uh-huh. life and cycles. In your life, and your profession, business, and, and everything that goes on, there's timing with that. There's cycles with that. There's rhythms with that. Whenever your rhythm is off, you're out of the yeah. timing of God and how he wants you to move and where he wants you to move. That's very, that, that's, what you're saying is very real and, and, and very uh, uh, prophetic in recognizing your timing. Things that you have to do because I can recognize and I can understand it. Like you said, the people here in the states wanted to celebrate you and, and do things with you, but your responsibility was international. So right. I can only imagine the the one and and these are my words, not yours. The mm-hmm. the fear of like you said, being able you, you could not go in and give your opinion, although you may mm-hmm. see something that looks different to you from the outside looking into where you're going as opposed to what you're accustomed to here at home or on the Bronx. So when you mm-hmm. went to some country, Turkey, Istanbul, somewhere, and you see something that's different, how do you – and you had to stay in your lane, as you, you, you noted – how do you then embrace what your uh, objectives are and how do you be able to express those to uh, those foreign leaders – in areas where there might be some human rights issues. There might be some, some issues that you have to deal with. I know there were some difficult positions and situations for you. How did you embrace those and deal with them and still be able to move forward in God to 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 deliver the, the message that you had to deliver?
2: Well, you know, it's about being clear again on the assignment. Um, I wasn't sent to evangelize and proselytize my assignment was very clear that anybody had the right to believe what they wanted and not or not wanted to believe so i you have you know a lot of time and energy and thought and preparation went into each trip so before i got on a the plane there were hours and hours and hours of preparation for that trip and some you know most of it's confidential because that's why it's a diplomatic engagement but you have to be very clear on what your um what you're supposed to accomplish on that particular trip and it's nothing more and it's nothing less and so you know I think coming from the church world it actually was very helpful being a pastor because there are times people share their confidences with us or we have to share a confidence with someone and the whole rest of the church may think you're off, you know, mm-hmm.
0: and they may mm-hmm. think,
2: like, um, you're not doing it right. And you know inside that, you know, that, that person may have been very deeply hurt that week or raped or whatever would have happened, a tragedy, and you know that you have to even sometimes shift your message because what you wrote down to preach that week may certainly interfere or hurt that person. So you have to, so, so there's one person that has the pie, you know, and then there's several people who who are cutting into that pie. There's several people who are giving voices. So I could not say coming in for two or three or four years, you know, that I'm right. You know, I bring a perspective, certainly, and I certainly was very vocal on things that faith leaders and their need for faith leaders to be at the table And Secretary Clinton was very aware of that. So she created what was called the Strategic Dialogue with Civil Society, which meant that lay people – of all persuasions, including faith leaders, needed to sit with government leaders because we have a government perspective, and they have an outside of government perspective. And so she created that, and she made me one of the co-chairs. And it was really brilliant because, of course, I brought faith leaders to the table. So here you have, for the first time in the Department of State, imams and rabbis and preachers sitting around talking with government leaders about foreign policy and about how you translate can't go into a certain culture and say it this way, do it this way, or expect these results. And so you had the people who are from those cultures, you know, interpreting, you know, this is what we believe, this is what the Quran says, this is what the Torah says, this is what the Bible says. And you had that at the table. So for me to be a co-chair and watch that whole experience, which now Secretary Kerry has picked up and continued, so it can go to a whole other level. We had, you know, two years of not trial and error. We had two years of putting it to practice. Now he pick, he comes in for his four years, and he builds upon it. And he's got his people that take it to a level that we couldn't take it. One of the the biggest confirmations for me that I knew that I had moved by the Spirit of the Lord in, in accepting the invitation to come. And you have to, you know, it's an invitation to, to be appointed there. Was the second week on the job I had um, a faith leader roundtable, and there was a rabbi and an orthodox, an orthodox rabbi and an imam. And traditionally in religions that are very strict and male-oriented, they're not supposed to even come close to to a woman that's not their wife. But the second week on the job, they came in, and they were so excited. They said, you're the answer to our prayers. You're the one that God placed here for this moment. And I'm like, you know, we're in a in a, in a government building, and I'm like looking around <laughs> like, oh, my God, <laughs> oh, my God. And, um, and, and the whole run was like that the Lord sent literally messengers and angels who said, you know, we didn't all know you before, <laughs> but we're convinced right. that you're supposed to be here for this particular time. And so we had, I had a great run. And some of my dearest friends now are people who are conservatives who sit on the other side of the aisle. But, you know, religious freedom was their issue, and I saw their passion for it, and I saw how they would fight for human rights and and fund it because you have to have funds mm-hmm. to fuel it. And they embraced me, and they introduced me to this new world of conservatism. And we would have never had a reason to sit down at the same table before coming into government, because I'm a black Baptist from the Bronx, you know, in Harlem. They were evangelicals. and, And we would have never had a reason to sit at the same table, but we did. And we got some wonderful things accomplished in government together. And so I now... Know that it was the Lord's hand for such a time as this, and, and I'll finish with the story before your next question. There was a rabbi that went over to Israel. The Jews celebrated a, a time, a feast of Purim, P-U-R-I-M, and it's it's around April or so. Anyway, I get this email, um, and and he said, you know, I'm here at the feast of Purim, and, and it's where they celebrate. Esther, Queen Esther, he says, mm-hmm. and the Lord the Lord told me that you are our Esther for such a time as this. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> you know. I mean, you know, he's on the other side of the world. He's Jewish. He's conservative. And here he's, like, saying you are our Esther. And my first... Um, assistant when i came into the state department her name was esther so i just kind of there were so many signs of god that it was just like okay (laughs) i accept you know i accept this assignment it's it's yours i'm yours um and i'm his vessel so i am so clear that i'm god's vessel and and my life is not my own um he's allowed me to do some marvelous things but it's to give him glory
1: that is so awesome. And uh, just the opportunity that has been afforded to you to not only serve the Lord, but then serve this president, this administration, and serve this
2: country abroad, yeah.
1: and to do the things and the exposure that you've had, and just the opportunity to be able to witness the things that you witnessed, and then witness to the people you witnessed to, and then have them confirm and, and, and confer back with you uh, from different countries, different nations, different religions. I'm sure it's just been an awesome experience for you to have uh, been able to participate in.
2: It really was. Um, you know, there's one, def- we say the Jabez prayer from First Chronicles 4.10 and it's, Lord, increase right. my territory. But one definition that fell in my lap right before I took this job was Lord, increase my opportunity, increase the opportunities that I may have, so that I might touch more lives for you, so that you might get more glory. And that's really the the interpretation I took with me that the Lord was increasing the opportunities that I had. I was touching more lives than I ever thought I would touch, but the, it was not for my glory, but for that God might get more glory. And
0: that I just strong. was
2: like. You know that was what fueled me and carried me, and um, and uh, you know I'm full circle and and I'm back. You know I'm kind of grounded again. I will say um, I took the I left October 17th was my last day, and I left for a couple of reasons. One, um, I have two sons in in private colleges who are undergrads, and they've done extremely well. They've actually, you know, shared me with the world, um, and I, I've I seen so many African-American families sacrifice their families, but also they come out and their kids are in so much debt that when they start as adults in this society, they're strangled, you know, because the rest of their lives, their checks are gone a sheet or they're paying back these loans, and I was committed to having, I have two African American sons, um, committed to giving them an undergrad education that was debt-free, loan-free. And you can't do that on a government salary. You literally, you know, governments are not intended for you to get rich. It is the status quo. And although it was a wonderful opportunity, I said, I have two sons who have dreams as well. And I wanted to get them on their path, and so I wanted to be, because you can't, you have to sign an ethics agreement going in. You can't make any extra income. You can't push your books. You can't push any of the things that you right. had coming in because it's, you know, a conflict of interest and all other, And you know. it's So you can't do any of that. And I was like, okay, hold on now. <laughs> you know, they got their needs. And here I am really, in a sense, saving the world, and I was like, here are my sons, so that was a a major reason for me. Um My parents came from the deep South and they created wealth in New York city and My brother and I were able to soar through school and then into life because we didn't have any debt strangling us and You know while I was in the ambassadorship, I went out to to dinner with another woman who worked for government and she has $100,000 in debt from her college and master's program, and her child is just starting school with my child this year, and they already have $30,000 amassed in debt for that. So now when do they ever get out, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So we don't even eat a meal without her, like, saying, I I can't afford this, you know, or cutting it in half and saying, you know, can you take – So I really have a principle about wealth management and wealth building. And when I, I was in the President Clinton's administration. And when I came out, you know, he moved to New York and he opened the Clinton Global Initiative. And I went for the first five years, and it was one of the most powerful experiences. Here you had super wealthy people from around the world who came and they committed to working with a nonprofit. And so... They had to make a pledge right then of putting their millions and billions to help someone who's either in poverty or having an issue. So I'm at this table at lunch next to this young lady. She was a 20-something, and she's on her cell phone. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, how rude is it? (laughs) You know, we're at the table to talk, and she's on her cell phone. So she finally hangs up, and she says, I am so sorry. She says, but my family's foundation just um, committed to give a million dollars to one of these African villages that President Clinton wants to build a hospital in. And so my foundation, our family's foundation, has just committed a million dollars. And I'm sitting there like, bag, <laughs> um, you right. know. And I'm like, we train our children to do the liberal arts and then write the grant right. and have the handout. Right. They send their right. kids and build exactly. businesses and they fund and fuel. The grants that we write. And I just said, I have a shift. My kids are going to be in a different business mindset, you know, um, for the rest of their lives. So that was the second thing. And then the third thing was when I first started pastoring, I I pastored in Chinatown, New York. It was Mariner's Temple Baptist Church. It was the oldest Baptist church in, in New York City. And we had this, it was in the Lower East Side, which is Asians, Latinos, and black people all living together. They call it Alphabet City. So we shared the church with a Chinese church, and um, the pastor of the church had three sons, and the organist had three daughters, and each of them dated and married. So the organist also had a business. Um, It was called Shipman Stationery Store in the Bronx where I lived at the time. And they built that business. It was very lucrative on the grand concourse. And when the first of the two couples married, three couples married, they gave them that business. Then they started another shipments. Shipments two. The second couple married. They gave them the business. And the point was, these kids, who are now adults married, started out with an advantage, as opposed right. to a disadvantage. And so it's when you look at a lot of our couples, they start fighting over money. You know, so most of the divorces are usually about money or intimacy. It's about and, money you about money. And, and so all of those examples just stuck with me, and I just kind of said, no, I know what wealth is. I know how to manage right. it. I know how to build right. it. And I am in a different set of, you know, frame of mind that my family should not suffer as I do public Correct. service. So I really made a very clear decision um, in terms of timing to come out. And so yesterday... So yesterday I paid my last tuition payment for my oldest son's graduation who's going to graduate in May. <laughs> I paid the last tuition bill for his undergrad, and I was just like, thank you, God, <laughs> you know. Oh, thank you. Is. So I have a young black man who's going to be on his path, you know.
1: That is awesome. So anyway, I'm that's is, yeah, yeah, that's the
2: mommy's back. Huh?
1: I'm, I'm glad you brought that up in terms of, uh, uh, wealth and, and financing. And I'm going to take a 30-second break real quick because I want to come back and I want to talk to you about that and what you're doing now with your okay. success stories um, and okay. how you're talking about building success strategies for women in public life because I'm sure it's going to transcend on both gender in both ways. Give me 30 seconds and we'll catch you on the back of the sure. Back end.
2: Okay. okay.
0: You're listening to Black Politics Today, an eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source on social, political, and economic impact on public policy on the African-American community. Now, here's your host, Kelly Michael Williams.
1: Welcome back to the show. You're listening to Black Politics Today, and I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. And my guest today is none other than Ambassador Sue J. Cook, Susan Johnson Cook, former ambassador at large for the International Religious Freedom under the Obama administration and serving at the State Department under former Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. Now, Ambassador uh, Sue Jay, um, I-, I know you're... Close with the with the Clintons. I know you, you know, started out in the Clinton administration as I did, and then you're uh, transitioning to Obama. So, just a, a, a little question of, of of you know what's happening in 2016. Uh, uh, what position are you going to hold, and prominent role are you going to play in, in uh, Senator Clinton's uh, or Secretary Clinton's upcoming uh, presidential bid?
2: Now, see that's a loaded question. See, it's two thousand fourteen, <laughs> and I'm just coming up for air from from the last three years last five years. So, what I will say is, you know, I am a supporter of those who are good leaders, and um whoever approaches me, whether it's in fourteen or fifteen or sixteen, we will have a conversation about what they stand for, what they're looking to do. And I will always pray about whether I fit in in terms of what their agenda and their vision is. But in the meantime, you know, the Lord's given me a vision, you know. And there's a certain point that you say you help other people's dreams come true, and then there's another point where you say the Lord has also given me a dream, And part of that was the the family piece, you know. That was real important to me to keep my family intact and to help them. Uh, My oldest son said one day, he said, now it's time for you to help us have our dreams come true. And I said, you know what, you're right. (laughs) You're absolutely right. You've moved. They've had four addresses in five years, you know. Mm -hmm. And although they've flowed well with it and don't complain, at the same time, you know, Kids want to come home to their posters and their bed and, and, you know, their kind of familiar space. And so my thing is to create a home environment that they want to always come back to and and thank God they still do and bring their friends and and we have the whole sleepovers and I love it. I'm like a soccer mom, so I love (laughs) having my guys, you know, eat my lasagna and their dad is really great with fried chicken and, you know, I love that stuff. So anyway, so – I am trying to focus on 2014 and for me success strategies for sisters is real important because my my um my clear niche are women leaders. Before it was just women clergy, but now it's women of faith who are leaders in every sector um and so the lord has given me a movement called the pro voice movement it just literally got incorporated this week so there is no website yet but um we do have our um incorporation and a website will be built it is targeted to women leaders and see in this world that i flowed they gave you two choices they're like are you pro-life or are you pro-choice and my thing is even those choices are limiting because, number one, most of the time they come from men saying you've got to choose this. My thing is that a woman should have a voice in every arena of her life. And so it is designed to help and I, and I would build. This. I would, mm-hmm.
1: And I would say this, and, and not to interrupt you, but I want to keep going. I just spoke about that today, and that's the only reason why I, I'm saying what I'm saying is that when um, being the political strategist that I am and and coming out of the the Willie Brown era into the Bill Clinton era and and moving forward, is that whenever I would be faced with that pro-choice, pro-life issue, I would turn it back on those who were pro-life and simply say, my candidate and we were pro-family. And what that means Uh is it's a family's, Responsibility is the family's prerogative. It's our family who determines and decides what we're going to do. And I'm not going to let yeah. you, your legislation, or your viewpoint impact what I have to do with what I feel in my family. So just as you want to have your family values and you want to tell us how you live, that's fine. But you can't tell me how I'm going to live or what I'm going to do with my family. And I think something that we have to recognize is that we have to be willing to stand up and say, "My family is." my responsibility and how I want to deal with this, live with it, so that you Yeah, I mean, and, you know, we kind of
2: say it's our first ministry. Exactly. Very much so. Um, right. And, and I'm, but I'm intentional about helping women who've identified themselves as leaders know how do you get to the top, how do you stay on top, and how do you keep from toppling over. And I've been blessed right. to have worked now with two you know, presidents of the United States, three cabinet secretaries. So I've been, you know, in the inside of government. I've been a a pastor. I've been, you know, the president of the Hampton Ministers Conference, 12,000 pastors.
1: So I know something about
2: leadership. And a chaplain for the New York City Police Department, 50,000 people. So I know some things about leadership. I know some things about survival. I know some things about what I call life balance. So my project is going to be called the Well Project, where we look at women building wealth, um, enterprising, entrepreneurial, life balance, leadership skills, and leaving a legacy, because ultimately, what good is all of this that we've done, all this trailblazing, all this work we've done, if the next generation has to start all over? So my thing is intergenerational transference of wealth and leaving your mark so that they know that we have been here. And, you know, I was very close to Coretta Scott King, Mother's, Mother Coretta, I called her. I was her goddaughter and, you know, also close to Dr. Dorothy Height and you know, there's a real void in leadership um, in our community, and so I'm hoping that um, the people who want what I have, my experience, my voice, will will come. You know, and and it's not about numbers anymore, but it's the people who want what I have will receive it, and I'm ready mm-hmm. to give it. So that's that's my cause. My company is um, called Charisma Speakers. And we provide paid professional speakers for all conventions and conferences. Paid professional speakers for all conferences and conventions and colleges. And so, if your conference needs a, you know, a, a keynote, or or if you need coaching, or if someone's doing public presentation and needs coaching for that, that's what my company does. But it's, I've globalized my brand now, so I do it all over the world. And, you know, we get people ready for the world stage, and that is men and women. And, um, you know, so I have a little experience now being in front of a few crowds and uh, being (laughs) with kings and queens but also the common touch, and you have to be able to have both. And I just feel so blessed. That's my company, and, and that's where, uh, you know, as my parent, my late parents built a, a, the longest-running black family business still in the Bronx, New York. It's called Johnson Security Bureau. So I come from entrepreneurs, hardworking people who employ people in our community. And so in a sense, it's always going to be some public service in my life, um, but there's right. also going to be um, – enough so that my children and their children can have a legacy. And so I'm really, really pleased. Here in Washington, we have an organization called Wisdom Women Worldwide, and that's to provide retreats for um, faith leaders all over the world. Uh, We do an annual retreat. And we also do business deals that must include a woman, (laughs) Um, so that if people are making this money all over the world, they've got to make sure that a woman's um, included in that equation. So you know, I, I'm clear on my passion and my purpose and my call and my company and my cause, and uh, just getting ready to kind of blow up, you know, in the next few weeks.
1: I am looking forward to it. I, I want to assist and help in any way I can because you can certainly Ooh. have this platform to talk about whatever you want to talk about, whatever you want to advertise. You are welcome to use this platform anytime, any, any way you want to, I will certainly make it available to you because what you're talking about is something that I have been talking about on this show forever, since I started this show, and that is African Americans, black folks recognizing and understanding the creation of wealth and wealth transfer. Not Uh one, as we say, not um, hoarding it and not holding on to it, but also not looking beyond Yourself and your own generation. Uh, right. I, I when, when when we talked uh, after service at church, and I told you that I was working on a project because we as uh, af- we as African Americans spend one point two trillion dollars a year in goods and services, but yet our net income, our liquid net income, is less than five thousand dollars, and that's. Uh-huh, uh, uh- uh- that's ridiculous because what hits us the most mm-hmm. is especially during times of, of, of death and trial when a family member passes away and we don't have enough money to bury them because, one, either they didn't get any life insurance, and, two, if they don't have their life insurance. Family members around don't have enough liquid cash to go to the bank, get out five or $10,000 to bury your loved one and put them away. Okay. So everyone's scrambling and everyone's fighting and everyone's arguing. Over material things that have no value and meaning in terms of of, of of legacy and growth, and we want to fight about that, but we can't bear our loved ones, and yes, next, next thing we're doing is fighting at the funeral, and right I, or I leaving the
2: burden that. on the church, and and it's yes, yeah, I mean we have these lives. We're supposed to do something with the time we've been given. You know, we don't know how much exactly. time that is, but it's. You're supposed to – everybody gets the same amount of hours in a day. And what do you do with what's been placed in your hands to do? And, again, you have to be really clearly focused. And you can't listen to the riffraff. You have to be very, very clear about what voices you listen to and how you move. And it's not being standoffish. It's really just being focused. And, you know, at the time you're supposed to go public, the Lord will let you know that. Um, But you don't want to step out there not ready either, you know, so exactly. what I did the last four months, I, like I was saying before, I left October 17th, and I took literally 120 days. Um, to, to, yesterday was the 17th, so from October 17th to uh, February 17th. And I, the Lord drove me to what's called a Selah. You know, in the Psalms, that word you're not supposed to speak, S-E-L-A-H. Right. And it's right. to take a pause. It, the instruments stop playing. The psalmist stopped singing and it's for him to lead you beside the still waters to restore your soul. And I had been so exhausted from, you know, 28 trips abroad in 29 months, my body needed just to stop, and my spirit needed to catch up with my mind and my body. And I cannot tell you how refreshing it is. Now, you have to also be strong enough financially. I mean, Susie Orman talks about, you know, you need to have six months of all your bills and all your money that your liquid saved up so that you right. can do that without a strain and without the pressure. And I was able to do that. So I have six months of really putting my infrastructure together, getting my body and my mind together. I've been working out and so when I do step out, you will know it. <laughs> you know, you'll know that I'm strong, that I will look successful, I have success and access. And so how do we right. as Women and men in our community strategize. So we get emotional, and so we move emotionally and not strategically. And that's what we've got to learn from the other communities. They move strategically. They get strategically, emotional later. Exactly. <laughs> they move strategically yeah. first. And that's and the that, big And that's the interesting difference.
1: thing about it is that their, their movement is not emotionally based. It's all strategically no. based. When opportunity hits, they're ready to move with the opportunity, and they have understanding and clarity of exactly how to move when there. And so it doesn't rock their boat to, right. to jump out there and do something, right? Because, one, faith is taking they've rehearsed
2: it already. They've rehearsed it.
1: Yeah. Exactly. You've seen it. You've got it, and you move forward. And it's like you said, you, you, you don't bury your treasure and sit back. You go ahead and multiply that treasure, like the uh, like the Bible talks about the uh, man with the talents. You don't you don't right. bury it and leave it there. You go out and you multiply it and use what God has given you. Your gifts are going to make room for you, so you need to use your gifts. You don't sit back on them and just hoard them for yourself because they weren't for you in the first place. And right. somebody right now is planning
2: about, for 2016. You know, someone, exactly. some people, not just someone, some groups of people. Right are planning right now exactly. for 2015. They know who they're going to announce. They know when they're going to announce it, where they're going to announce it. And we're like, so is it is it – well, you know, you want to be at the table so you can be part of the decision, and you don't have to raise exactly. the question, but you can be exactly. part of the answer, you know? Exactly,
1: exactly. And so, and I think we as a, as a people need to recognize and understand that we're losing generations and we're losing – the what I call the, in the political sense, the political prowess and power that we have as a as a as a people and as a culture, to the lack of planning and lack of vision to move forward. We're we're not moving ahead in that planning stage of looking to the vision of 2016, 2018, 2024, um, uh, 2024, and planning and preparing to where we can start setting. You know what I notice about other cultures is that they plant seeds and then they harvest and let those seeds uh, uh, grow and mature to where then when it comes up, it springs up and you're thinking, wow, where'd that come from? Well, they had already yeah. planted the seed. They had already been, so, you know, there, are um, you know, there are some in our
2: community that are doing that. You know, there were some in our community that are doing that, you know, because we're not monolithic, but we need more because there was a whole generation of, you know the Earl Graves, the Johnny Cochran, the whole. You know you could call the names, the Kings, the Dorothy Heights.
0: Right. Right. Um
2: and, and now we're more. We call the social media and stuff. We don't hear about them as much. Maya Angelou's, you know, is frail, and and so they're not as many of us out there, invisible. But there are some who are right. doing. And I was, you know, part of um of the group of moms called Jack and Jill. You know, and there was planning from the birth of an African American child all the way to their graduation from high school, we collectively raised these children and placed our values poured our values and deposited our integrity into them. And you know, there was there are some shining, wonderful stars. Now they've got, you know, a few years to blossom and develop, but we're gonna have another right. generation and and you can't stop. You know, that's something like that's, that's something like that's you have key, to spend right some time right. with your kids. Mhm.
1: Right that's, yeah that's the key right there. we can't stop i'm I'm looking forward to trying to to collaborate with a number of different um, individuals and organizations to continue to move and progress as as a group as as a people as as a collective body because it's it's not just for me to succeed if no one else does and and, and one I can't see, succeed on my own anyway so it's something to where agree. I feel that I need to be able to make myself available, make this platform available. Not only so this platform can grow socially and, and in the media, but also so that others can be impacted with it and uh, using it to 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 make uh, to make their voices heard and to make their um, uh, products and, and things out there available.
2: Um, right, I'm and I will say this: I was also. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Finish. Uh, uh, it was echoing. I'm sorry. Are you working on an opportunity to
1: what? Work? I'm working on the opportunity to make sure that we can take what you're talking about in terms of uh, uh, your children and, and how you talked about uh, passing down businesses to our kids and, and opportunities mm-hmm. down to them because it's something that the idea is that we're supposed to work. Um, and and teach our children exactly, you know, how, when, where, how, and what to do so that they can then do the same thing for their kids so we can create that generation. But I'm working on this, this yeah, uh, very opportunity much so. to try to get more black businesses on Wall Street, and I think I talked to you about that because right now, as many black businesses as we have, we only have two actually trading on Wall Street. And I uh. think if... We're spending 1.2 trillion dollars a year. There should be more than two companies on Wall Street trading, and neither wow. one of those companies right now are trading at more than six dollars a share, which is wow. also a travesty when you talk about who it is. But I'm working on uh, uh, working with them, uh, those two individuals as well as uh, groups. And, and, and the faith-based community and, and other business communities as well as black banks and et cetera to try to work on a, a, a program and project to, to bring more into the way okay. to where we can build some way of wealth okay. uh, using okay. the formats that other other cultures are using.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's there. Um, I was going to say, you know, I'm also, I was also made a Delta, an honorary member of the Delta Sigma Theta, and I became a link last year. And I must say, these women... Our sisters are doing it, you know. Delta is the largest women's organization, black or white. And last week they were here for on Delta Days on Capitol Hill. Three of the members of of. Uh, the Congressional Black Caucus or Delta Women and there's a strategy you know it's not just kind of come together in red and white there's a strategy and then the links we're doing I'm on the International Affairs Committee and we're going into Banneker High School and we're starting at the high school level to get young people who are interested in international affair, ca- affairs careers and we're plugging them into like the Rangel Scholarship pro- and the Pickering Scholarship Program which are wonderful ways to get people of color into the State Department. So, you know, there's there's work being done. And so what we have to do is find opportunities also to celebrate the work that's being done, yes. but also find opportunities yes. for the continuum. I live in a summer community called Sag Harbor, and my neighbors are Susan Taylor and Earl Graves, amongst others. But I saw you were talking about passing the business on. I saw Earl Graves pass it on to his three sons, and they are running it, with their families and Black Enterprise magazine. And so you know there are many right. stories like that. That's one that just stands out. So, you know, those are the places that we smile and and we say okay. Okay. Um it's not over yet, so we just have to continue it. But if you might, can I share with folks um how they can find me on the internet? Um oh, if absolutely. they're looking well, charisma speakers—if they want a speaker for their conference or convention—is speak, charisma speakers at gmail dot com, and in about two weeks, our website will be up charisma dot com. But it's—you um, can get me right now by email charisma speakers at gmail dot com or ambassador sujay s u j a y at gmail dot com. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook, and I have a show. If you go on YouTube and subscribe to the Ambassador Sujay channel. We have five shows with some who are Washingtonians, Clifton Powell, who was a great actor. There are interviews called Conversations with Ambassador sujay Clifton Powell, Chef Daniel Thomas, who was uh, one of the first black chefs for the United States Senate, and he cooked uh, President Obama's first meal when he was up at Congress. Um, Raina DuBose, who's our sister, who lost all her limbs. She's a former basketball player, uh, went to a... Division one school and, and fell out because of meningitis, got a meningitis strain, lost all her limbs when she woke up out of a coma. But she's turned that disability wow. into ability. And she's a motivational speaker, and she's with charisma speakers. So there's a wonderful story. A story a G- Judge Glenda Hatchett, who used to be Judge Glenda on TV, and Bishop Neil mm-hmm. Ellis, who has now um, formed what's called the Global United Fellowship. Of, uh, of over a thousand churches um, church leaders, and they 're going global, so it's you know we continue the conversations, and if you like it, please give me a thumbs up or, or a like on Facebook, but please stay in touch with us, and we'd love to hear from you as well and I you know I really appreciate you having me on the show. This is a wonderful vehicle, and we will work together in partnership, both on and off the air.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I actually have been to your uh, YouTube show, and I was watching your clips uh, all during the anticipation of of you being on this show, and I certainly want to tell you you're doing a wonderful job, and I am excited about what you're doing because it makes me inspired to continue to do what I'm doing. And all the wonderful people that you've had on your show, I want to grab them and get them on my show so we can talk about all the things that you talked about and then some. So I just wait, and, and then we'll have to you have you on it.
2: as well. When we have another crew, we'll have to have you on our show as well. But it was my pleasure to be with Absolutely. you, and and the Lord bless you and continue the great work.
1: I will. I thank you so much and appreciate you taking the time out. Let's thank You're you welcome. for so much, uh, Ambassador Sue J. Cook, Susan Johnson Cook, uh, with us tonight. Have thank you. Take care. You too. Bye bye. Well, that's our show for this evening. I want to thank everyone for joining us and uh, participating. Feel free to certainly check us out on Facebook, uh, follow us on Twitter, and you know exactly where to find us each Tuesday night, right here at blackpoliticstoday.com. Or, of course, you can check us out on Blog Talk Radio, Black Politics Today. Until next time, we want to thank you so much. Be good, take care, and God bless you.
0: You're listening to Black Politics Today, an eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source on social, political, and economic impact on public policy on the African-American community. Now, here's your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Thank you for listening to Black Politics Today, an eye for what's at stake in global politics, with your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Until next time, follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook.